a listener production. Okay, are you recording? Are you recording? Greetings, one and all. You are listening to episode 13 of the Howie Games Artist Series Part A, featuring a man who is a genuine TV star, and there are not many of those around these days. Let me tell you, his name is Grant Denyer. Time for Family Feud. Now, he's your host, Grant Denyer. Tonight's next All-Star won the Mirrorball Trophy back in 2006 and everyone knows him as a natural entertainer. There's no doubt that Grant Denyer's a fan favourite. Do you have what it takes to play Million Dollar Minute? Why not have a go? Your time starts now. Right, let's get to another guy who had a mullet in his day. Grant Denyer. I didn't just have a mullet. I had a flat top with a rat's tail, <laughs> believe it or not. Grant has done it all, seen it all and hosted it all on Aussie TV. News reporting, weather reporting morning TV, game shows, reality TV, gold Logie winner. The boy is big time, big time. He's full of energy, big smile, always smiling. He's got a quick wit. He's very sharp in a suit. He is, quite simply, a star. Plus, plus, he races cars at a serious level. I'm talking V8s at Bathurst type of level, so he is perfect for the artist series. Now, like many that have made it onto your TV screens, Grant's is a winding journey. Long hours, lots of work, Many, many successes. In Grant's case, big successes. And some really tough times. Again, in Grant's case, really tough times. But he puts his head down, he works through stuff, and moves onwards and upwards. Now, once you've listened to this episode of The Howie Games, you should check out Grant's podcast. It is a beauty. It is done in conjunction with his wife, Shezzy, who is a hoot herself, it must be said. It is called It's All True. And it is just that, as opposed to what you may read in the odd glossy magazine at the supermarket about maybe Grant and Chessie. Again, it is called It's All True. Now, I am fortunate, fortunate to have known Grant for many a year, have been lucky to work with him on all sorts of things and am privileged to call him a mate. So I may be biased, but I'm telling you, he is the best thing on Aussie TV. Enjoy the story of a bloke who is the definition of having a crack. Grant, Craig, Denya, TV star. Well, this is a true treat for me. Welcome to the Howie Games, a man that for me, I'm biased admittedly, he's got a gold Logie, but for me, he has been the most entertaining, upbeat, warm television presenter this country has seen for the last 15 years across all sorts of formats. I'm lucky enough to call him a mate, but I would say that anyway. His name is Grant Denyer. He joins us on the Howie Games Artist Series. Big Daddy, how are you? Wow, Mark Howard. Considering we are mates, um, that I was not expecting such beautiful words to flow from from your orifice. That was, <laughs> you've touched me in the heart. Well, it was a certain orifice. I hope I hope it was the right orifice. But I mean that in all sincerity. Um, you're a star. You're a television star, and I know you're a humble man. And people won't understand. Well, why have you got him on the artist series? Because what's his involvement in sport? We will explore motorsport, and people. A lot of people will have no understanding of what you've done in a race car. But you are a television star, and we don't have many of those these days. No. Um, yeah, I guess everyone's career is is pretty short lived these days. We sort of. We, you know, we turn them and burn them. Um, whether you're cancelled or just your moment of fame seems to be about seven minutes instead of fifteen minutes these days. So, someone who's enjoyed a twenty-five year career in, in television is is a pretty is a pretty lucky one. So, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm a dying breed. The cancellation factor is extraordinary, isn't it? I don't know about you. Um, you know, I commentate footy, cricket. I, you can't go too far wrong, although you can go too far wrong. The radio, we do a Friday night show where it's a little bit on edge called the Friday Huddle, mate, and it does come in your mind that if you say the wrong thing here or you get your words messed up or you misrepresent yourself, you can be in a lot of trouble in a very short period of time. And there's no going back. There's a certain no. permanence to it as well, that the moment that has happened and that pin has been pulled out of the hand grenade, you can't put it back in um, because it just runs away from you. And, you know, we were kids who grew up in the outer Melbourne suburbs, you know, in, in the 90s. You know, I was listening to all the wrong songs in, and using words that, you know, I shouldn't have been using, but that was part mm. of the music culture at the time and I was a wannabe little white rap, rap boy. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm, I was using words back then in the playground that, you know, I, no one should be using anymore um, for a reason, but that was how we grew up. So some of it is still in you because that was just the language of the streets and, mm. and, and, and amongst mates. 
Um, but I'm also really well aware of the responsibility we've got to kind of change change all of that. But, mate, I, I, I'm glad I'm not, say, a breakfast television host because oh. I reckon that would be the hardest where you're supposed to be digesting the most serious and cultural matters of the world and trying to deliver it in a form that people can understand it and make it interesting. You're also supposed to be going out on a limb because, you know, Television at its best is when you push the envelope and you do put a toe over the line. However, if you just read that wrong in that microsecond and you go that half step too far, you'll never work again. And it is, it's as simple as that. You will never work again. And there's, so there's no, there's no higher, greater cost. No, it's a, yeah, I'd hate to be starting out now. I mean, if you say the wrong thing, as you say, I, I yeah, I, I remember Quite a few years ago, mate, I was filling in for breakfast radio and you must have had countless of these moments. And there's a, a gentleman by the name of Phil Walsh who was the coach of the Adelaide Crows and he was murdered. And we were on breakfast radio and I was on there with Wayne Carey and it happened. It, the, the news came to light as we were on air. Now, some presenters from a news background, that, that's what they live for, not in a ghoulish way, but to be there when the news is breaking. And I remember myself and Wayne tiptoeing through it for an hour and chatting to a couple of people on the radio about it. And I was terrified the whole time that I would say something that would upset a family member, that would upset the audience, that you weren't as eloquent as you would want. I didn't enjoy that experience at all. No, it's 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 a tough – and if you're not used to telling those stories and using that language and knowing how to safely navigate it where you do it delicately and with respect, it, yeah. do, it doesn't come natural because – God, how often do you ever talk about someone that you know that was murdered? It's there's no, no. playbook for that. You know, I remember I was a I came up as a, a, a cadet journalist, right? I I was never smart enough of a kid to be able to go to university and do journalism. I was never going to have the the high school score high enough to be able to get in for that. So I was always going to have to find a back door. So my back door into the industry was um, to work do work experience in years 10, 11, and 12, every school holidays in a country TV station, right? So I'd travel <laughs> on the bus and my mum had put me on the bus at sort of 16 in Melbourne. I'd travel up to Wagga Wagga um, in a country, little rural TV station, and I would carry tripods. I would wash the news cars. I'd watch the editors edit and I would just secretly kind of just learn and absorb um, and that was my back door in. And they eventually gave me a job as a journo. And I was a shithouse journo, like <laughs> not a political animal, you know, not very worldly living in those southeast Melbourne suburbs, you know, listening to Vanilla Rice and NWA. <laughs> um, but, and then so they realised pretty quickly that I wasn't, I wasn't the one to go and interview the local politician. I wasn't the one to be, you know, the first to a murder scene. And the first time I saw a dead body, I was like, oh, my God, this ain't for me. So that was in a news environment, was it? Yeah, yeah. That was in, in, oh. in, in, in and like, I, I, I wasn't equipped for that. I was like a work experience and I, I sent to this job where this bloke was, um, he was driving a convertible, right? He was driving this, this is going to be, it's a little bit gruesome, but I'll, I'll, I'll straighten it out a little. He was driving the old Ford Capri, which was a convertible. And this guy yeah. was driving to work in the morning. Uh, he was driving where he was driving east, where the sun was coming up. So it was it was in his field of view. Now he didn't see an oncoming truck that had a wide load, wider than normal. You know, sometimes they got the signs on the front yeah. saying wide load. So it was carrying like half a house on the back. He thought he'd left enough room for the truck because he was sort of still in his lane. Didn't realise how wide it was. So he's just sort of driven straight into you know the underside of the house. Jeez. I turn up. You know, the only place I'd ever seen anything, you know, gruesome was 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 on a movie, like watching Terminator or something. How old are you at this point, mate? Oh, 17 maybe. <sighs> and so this this bloke uh, is all over the place. Like it, it's everywhere. And then I'm sort of doing the journal stuff and interviewing, interviewing the policeman and not able to find the words to describe what on earth it is I'm looking at. And then you just go, you write the story and you go, you go to bed and no one ever talks about it again. And you're like... I just saw something that no yeah. one should ever have to see. Is there any duty of care to make sure that I'm okay here? Absolutely. Because surely there would be now. Surely you'd get more support now than you would have for you in, in the late 1990s. Yeah, prob probably would. I, I think newsrooms are still pretty old school environments though, you know, and I think there's there's definitely, you know, you're, you're, you're tasked 
well, you certainly were back then with doing three stories a day. So it was just a grind to get them all out and everyone just moves forward. But hopefully it is different today because that's that's a lot for a young bloke to stomach and then go, hmm, is this what I really want to do? Yeah. What I did uh, figure uh, out was um, is I obviously had quite a tender touch and then I ended up just focusing a lot on the colour story. So I ended up being really good at, mate, if there was a flower show on or if there was a cat up a tree, I'd find some quirky ass way to make it so insanely interesting that they just let me blossom in this area. But talking about the murder thing, um, I would whenever the, whenever someone had to talk to a family who had lost someone, they'd send me because I was so non-journo-y and I just talked in normal language and just didn't, they they would get me to do it. The police would get me to do it, interview the, the, the victims or the family members that had, of, of those had lost just because... I had a slightly different, maybe not so hard newsworthy uh, approach to life. I was much, much more gentle. So, what, what do you say when when you meet someone in that situation? I can, and people will begin to understand as they learn and listen to this podcast that you pioneered a lot of things for me, and I just followed in your big footsteps along the way. But I, I can remember being in the ten newsroom after you, and being the cat up the tree man after you'd pioneered that pathway, and. Peter Brock passed in the rally, mate, and a man very close to your heart. And the news director, a great fellow called Dermot O'Brien, said, listen, you're working on the V8s, again, following in your footsteps, mate. You need to go out and uh, knock on Bev Brock's door and try and get a reaction. And I I didn't expect this is something we were talking about, and I can't remember if it was Fitzy or Pinney or Dubsy, cameraman that you would have worked with yep, as well. All good fellas. All good fellas and driving out there and I, I said, I can't do this. Yeah. I, there's no way. I don't know her. I can't ask her about this. And we got to the location and Dermot would be horrified to hear this now, but I just said to the camera, I, I'm not doing this. We're just going to have to say that there was no one there. And we drove back and um, said, oh, listen, there was no one there. Bev wasn't there when we knocked on the door. I, I didn't have the... I wasn't equipped mm. or I'm not the right type of person to do that in that situation. So I'm fascinated how you would be able to do that, being the, being the, the you know, the, the very warm and gentle man that you are. Yeah, no, it's not the door knocks because I, I can't do that either. I'm, I'm, I'm not hungry enough for the job to want to get that grab from someone who's freshly in mourning, right? And a great journo is someone who can do that. You know, we watch yeah. the news because we want to be reliably informed and we want we want to hear it straight from, from the source, right? They, you know, they're great truth busters, these, these good journos. They really are worth their weight in gold. I'm not one of those guys. Like I can't do that either. I can't knock on Bev Brock's door and say, hey, can you please give me a line for tonight's news? Otherwise my boss is going to give me a size 10 up the ass. Yeah, which is what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> but what, the only reason, what, what they would give to me was the police would, whenever there was a press conference, right, and that, and, and that involved all the media from newspaper, radio and television yep. and there was, the family was stepping forward for the first time, they would go, please, please, we want Grant to host host the press conference only and he does gotcha. all the questions. And I think that was that's when I realised that maybe I was made of some different stuff and maybe hard news journalism really wasn't for me. So you, you won't remember this. Um, I didn't expect to dive into it like this because there's a couple of uh, normally we start off a bit lighthearted, but you won't remember this, mate. Um, you were in the newsroom at Channel 10. I reckon it would have been in Melbourne. You can tell me it was Melbourne or Sydney. Uh, 2011 for the Twin Towers. And I know this because I got a text message on my little blue Nokia phone from you. And in my mind, it was 10.30 at night. People all historically uh, get that right right. for me. But I got a message from you saying, mate, turn on your TV. You can't believe what is happening. And I remember turning on the TV thinking I was watching, and I don't say this lightly, thinking I was watching a diehard movie because that's what it was like. What was it like in the newsroom? I've got a, 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 a an old friend that was in the newsroom, and I, I remember she had she was editing, and she was seeing the raw pictures, and she, she really struggled with it for quite some time afterwards. What was it like in the, in the newsroom? Were you doing your job, or do you have time to sit there and take in the enormity of the tragedy that's occurring before your eyes? 
Well, it was my birthday, so it was world shittest birthday. Yeah. You know, because September 11 in America is actually September 12 here, you know, in, in Australia. Of course. Um, so it was <laughs> – my birthday was forever marred by it. Um, I remember that night and I remember sending in that text message. I just – I had this compulsion I thought, you need to see this. This is um, – this is a game changer for how we're going to live from here on in. And I yeah. want, I and, and we were spending a lot of time together at the time. So, you know, we were good mates at the time. But, I, you know, I think I'd, I'd safely sort of crossed into that cut up a tree, you know, flower show uh, kind of guy. So I knew that I wouldn't be needed much, you know, in the next couple of days of, of the broadcast. But I was still in the newsroom and I was still watching all those pictures come in, you know, watching all those editors struggle of the raw pictures of people just jumping out of the building. You know, and just you know, ending their life that way rather than slowly, you know, victim to the to the heat or the or the flames. Um, yeah, it. Uh, yeah, and I think that I think it was a moment when I I, I kind of decided that I was going to change what I wanted to be because those stories are, are, they're too hard to tell if you're telling them every day of your life. Yes. If I I think. That kind of news, if you're telling that kind of news, is cumulative. It backs up in you. You know, one of the things that brought me done late, undone later in life, um, when I was broadcasting, I was on on Sunrise as a as a, as a weatherman um, in a different part of the country every single day, doing whatever I wanted. It was amazing, jumping out of helicopters, wrestling crocodiles, setting Guinness World Records, whatever. It was it was amazing. However, I just come from a cyclone, so it might have been Larry. Uh, in North Queensland, where I was un- in the eye of that storm, you, and you were the you were the you were the one bringing it to the country. You were the first one to report from where Larry was happening. I remember it clearly, mate. It was frightening. No one had ever broadcast live just using a mobile phone then. Um, yeah. Whereas we had it connected to our camera and we had audio and we had phone calls from the BBC and CNN going, "How how did you guys figure this out?" So as we're going live to where, we're just driving around and seeing homes with roofs ripped off and we're going up to doors as people sort of come out and we're, and we're like, are you guys okay? Is there anything you need? So this is all unfolding live on television. So I did that and then I went straight to the Brisbane floods. So when Brisbane went under in, in 2011. Um, and there's this real sadness to both of these events, right? This, it's, it's very heavy. There's a real darkness um, as people are realising that, you know, their homes are obliterated and they can't afford to live or rebuild or they've lost everything. Um, there's a, an emotional toll that certainly comes with experiences like this at the moment. Here in Gympie, the town, <coughs> excuse me, is isolated. And there's also a lot of people that, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Linda. Yes. Things are a little tough. Very tough. Tell me your story. Um, um, then after that, straight after the Melbourne floods was Christchurch where the earthquake happened over there. Mm. So we jet, We were the first to jet straight in there. Um, the army surround the city off. I've snuck in just before the army have closed it all off. So I can't come out because I won't be able to get back in. So I'm in there sort of just filming all the destruction and devastation and sort of just you know, finding a hole in the fence and, and sending the tapes out. Um, but the fear in, in the Christchurchians' lives of not knowing when the next one was going to happen was so palpable and weighs so heavily on you. I had this, I had this, it's an exhaustion, like a, just a disaster exhaustion where these three events back to back, I was, I was spent and burnt out and just, I hit the wall and nearly walked away from television altogether. But I was just like, I can't, I can't go on doing this stuff, you know, back to back to back to back because it's, I don't know if I'm too sensitive or my skin's too thin or I feel too much or uh, it just, I was, I had to get out. I had to make a change because it's, I can't can't do that. I think it's, um, I mentioned at the start, like you're a, you're a big hearted man and I'm not saying that people that do that aren't, but there is a, there is a strong outer shell to, to people that can do that time and time again. And I don't, it's not a negative or a positive. You're like me. You're not a strong outer shell man. You, you, you're a very emotional man. I will, let, let, let's, let's get to Sunrise because I'm fascinated by what the key to breakfast TV is. But uh, um, before we got into this heavy stuff, I, I had a general thought. Yeah, that we did hit the ground things. running, haven't we? <laughs> well, we, he, we have. We have. But we know each other well enough to do that. But there's a couple of things I have up my sleeve that I just need to check off. Um, with you to just find where you are in life because I haven't seen you for a while. The last time I saw you at your farm, 
Bathurst was on and I came up and shot a story. And it was, to me, it was bullshit because it was badged <laughs> as you being some gentleman farmer and you were like whispering at cows and being a man of the land. And to be honest, for, for a really genuine fella who I know and trust, oh, I just think it was a complete lie that you were trying to live out on the television that day. How, how is the gentleman farmer with the, do you have like woolly cows or something up there in Bathurst? Scottish Highland cows, mate. The prettiest cows <laughs> on Instagram. Are you kidding me? With their big horns and long red hair and their gorgeous little fringe hanging over their eyes. They're delicious. <laughs> see, see, I don't think your general farmer uses the word gorgeous and delicious when describing their cow. I think that highlights my point, mate. <laughs> yeah. I, look, you, mate, you, how dare you? I come, from, I come from incredible farming stock. You may. We're, you may, but that doesn't mean you're a farmer. <laughs> our family have been on the same farm for 113 years, five generations. Now, you can't right. say that, that, that some of that DNA is, is, has seeped its way down to me. I can say that quite clearly and strongly. I don't think it has. <laughs> was it the fact <laughs> that my RMs were brand spanking you that day? Was that the giveaway? Not a, not a piece of poo anywhere near those RMs. I, you could have cleaned your teeth in them though, that shiny. I thought I would have had you with the chewing of the straw while we were doing the interview, you know what I mean? Like I had, I ticked all the goddamn boxes, but still you saw through me act. <laughs> so that's the first thing I wanted to ask you. And the, the next one, um, I don't want to break any big exclusives, but you have released a single, which is good. But we, we had a conversation, and I love the single, but there was talk... <laughs> Of a Christmas album. Now, well, what's happened? Because every Christmas comes around and I text you saying, where's the album? And it still hasn't been released. Are we going to get the crooning Grant Denyer Christmas album? Mate, masterpieces aren't made overnight. You can't. <laughs> I know, but it's taken a bloody long time. You can't rush good art. <laughs> yeah. I did a toe in the water. So I recorded one Christmas song. Called? Driving Home for Christmas. Which I'm now going to play right now and people, it'll bring out their Christmas emotion. I'll play it in the podcast. It'll come out now. <laughs> Driving home for Christmas. Oh, I can't wait to see those faces. Driving home for Christmas. As you can tell, it's an absolute banger. <laughs> It's a banger. It's a banger. So um, I hope you enjoyed what you just heard. Um, a lot of blood, sweat and tears went into that recording. It took me about a good eight or nine minutes to knock that baby over. <laughs> um, it was a toe in the water for charity and it got to number five. It got to number five on the charts for about 43 seconds. Um, but I will live off that for a long, long time. Now, no, no whole Christmas album, but I can tell you, this is breaking news, no one knows this. There's a Grant Denyer live tour coming. Live tour? Yep, yep. We're hitting the road. Oh, this is good gear. It's going to be some game show gear in there. It's going to be some singing. I play guitar and the drums as well. We're going to give away some prizes. We're going to tell a little bit of our, our funniest stuff that's happened in our life and also the painful things that, you know, I've got wrong in my time. It's like it's going to be instead of a – the idea of writing a biography, um, I think I would rather – poke my eye out with a blunt spoon and sit down and write about my own life. Like that does mm. not interest me at all. I'm a kind of a bit of a look forward guy, not a look back guy. So I thought, well, I've got a lot of pressure to do this. What, what if I just did it in a completely different way? So it's kind of like a, a biography on stage with music and games and prizes and, yeah, and guests, special guests. See, this is oh, – when, when are we talking? When when would we generally get the chance to see this potentially? Ho hopefully by the back end of next year. Back end of next year. And this is – and I say this honestly and openly, this is what I love about you and this is where I said what I said at the start, the admiration I have for you. It is easy in 2022 to sit in the cheap seats and pop people having a crack, especially in this country. But you, and people will begin to understand as we go through a bit of a timeline of what you've done, you have been a man that has been prepared to put himself out there and accept the good and the bad feedback throughout your career. And I think that is why you are a genuine star because you're not afraid to have a crack, which is what, Grant, this country was built on. Mm. We may have gone away from that. That's a political discussion that you and I are definitely not clever enough to have. <laughs> but but you're a man prepared to have a crack and that's what I love about you. Thank you, mate. Um, 
Yeah, I think that maybe, you know, we joked about the farming heritage before and although you can't see it, (laughs) one thing that you do do on a farm for generations is have a crack because you have no other choice. You know, in the early days of owning that farm, there's no one around you. Everything everything you do is to survive. And mm. I think that's 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 the core the core inside of you when you're from a farming family that you realize you just got to get it done. Um, it has to be done and have a crack. You know, if it's not perfect, it's not perfect. But you know, you just had to find a way around problems uh, in on on a farm. So it's I, I think that's yeah, I think that's what's in me. Well, I, I think it's your greatest attribute, and you have you have many good ones. Farming, I'm still <laughs> saying, is not one of them. Um, <laughs> Particularly when I called my cows and they all ran the other way. <laughs> <laughs> they just disappeared off down the paddock. Like, who's this guy? I've never seen this bloke in the paddock before. To be honest, I've never seen a cow run so fast. Uh, <laughs> I didn't even know they could go that fast. <laughs> I need to dig that story up because it would make me laugh. We'll weave through as we converse. But I mentioned, you know, the Artist Series is about people that have a background or a love or an interest in sport, but then they create cross into the creative sphere, which is obviously what you've done with, with television and game shows and, and all sorts of amazing creativity. When did you first get into motorsport? Were you a young bloke on the farm on a, on a bike or a quad or an old beat-up car? I don't know this story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so same farm, uh, you're riding motorbikes at – well, you're driving, you're driving the ute at seven by yourself and you're, you're doing tractor shifts at 12. So you get this kind of real love of machinery very early on, whether it's just fanging around the sheds sideways in a homemade go-kart, spraying, you know, Nana's freshly washed sheets um, hanging on the line just with dirt, red dirt, very, very red dirt out that way. Um, but I, I kind of got even just sitting on the tractor and just focusing really, really hard on doing perfectly straight lines while you're sowing a paddock, sowing that year's crop, sowing that year's money, sowing that year's, you know, the, the, the future of the farm, if you like. Mm. And then you get to the corner and then you concentrate on doing an absolutely magnificent corner, just maximising every grain of dirt and making sure that you can get as much seed in the ground as, as, as possible. And that, that love of machinery and manipulating machinery developed very early on there. And that's just kind of just magnified and then just gone into motor racing. What's the next level? Well, maybe it's not, maybe it's not, uh, tractors, maybe it's racing go-karts, you know, and now I could do 300 kilometers an hour down Conrod Strait at Mount Panorama in a McLaren or a Ferrari or whatever in the GT series. And it's exactly the same as driving that tractor. It's <laughs> just, you're still trying to do perfect straights and magnificent corners. You're just doing it at 300, not 12 kilometers an hour. So yeah, it all, it all started there. So what was the first official car race you went in? Oh... I, I would have been a go-kart race, car race or go-kart. So go-karts, I started at about 16. New South Wales country kart champion. Oh, New South Wales country kart champion. Thank you. On the way to Formula One. Yeah. On the way to Formula One. <laughs> and it wasn't easy because when I started, I uh, it, when I was in Melbourne, so I was just living with my mum. My mum and dad were separated and um, so she didn't have a great love or understanding of, of car racing or want me to do it. But, you know, I'd managed to convince someone to buy me a go-kart. But I had no one to take me. So the only way I could get to a go-kart track was mum knew a guy at high school once who now owns a ute. So she forced this poor bloke to turn up to our house at about 5 a.m. on a Sunday morning to pick me up to take me to the go-kart track. Now, she thought <laughs> he was staying with me all day and helping me and pushing me and helping me lift the go-kart up and down and and maybe use the lap timer. Now, he'd just nick off and just go and do something <laughs> else and then would come back and pick me up and then drop me home like he'd been with me all day. So it was it was hard, like asking people to push start you and, hey, man, can you help lift it up onto my trolley? And so I, it was a very, very basic, humble beginnings that eventually led to that New South Wales Go-Kart Championship. Um, a lot of standing out in the rain, in the cold, didn't own a trailer. I had it just wrapped in a tarp that I'd got, you know, from Bunnings of the day, just hiding there waiting for my turn <laughs> to go and race in my go-kart. But, but I used to sit, I used to sit on the farm. We had a pile of, pile of Bathurst um, VHSs. So we'd always record it. 
every year and I would sit down and I particularly loved watching Dick Johnson's onboard cameras. Remember Dick was, he yes. wasn't the first, but he, he, was, he was one of the first to ever have an onboard camera. Oh, and it have the, would it have like the Channel 7 logo up in the corner. Yeah, and yeah. And it was like a full-size camera. This thing was yes. like huge. Yeah, that's it. A guy called Gary Wilmington, I think, did the first ever onboard um, shot and it was in the it was in the world because this was an Australian invention. No one had ever done it before. But then Dick had it, you know, for a couple of seasons, and he was always great at delivering one-liners. Always hilarious while he was driving, yeah. giving a commentary while he was going. So I'd sit there in the lounge room with my go kart seat. I take it off the go kart, bring it inside with the go kart steering wheel, and I'd sit down watching Dick Johnson's onboard cameras, and I'd be turning the same corners around ramp panorama that he was turning at the same time, like just practicing one day. <laughs> One day if I, I could be it, him. I and then I ended up driving for him. Yeah. So that was my first ever V8 supercar driver was for Dick Johnson, my hero. So it was, it was a cool full circle moment. So before we get to V8 supercars, so I've said, I said it a couple of times that you set out a pathway for me because you went into the Channel 10 News and you were the cut up a tree man. And then you were uh, doing a show called Trackside as the host of Trackside, which was a motor racing show, and you were doing other things. And then you left to go to Channel 7. And I got an opportunity to leave Channel 7 and come to 10 to be the guy in the newsroom. And I remember meeting the news director and he said, what do you know about news? I said, nothing. He said, oh, well, we had a, he had a bloke here. We had a bloke here that used to do the funny stories. You want to have a crack at that? So the first story I went out and did was with a bloke uh, uh, that said he had a cure for um, Nathan Buckley's hamstring. Um, and it was a typical Denya story. And I just took your cutout, your cutout of the way you would do it, and I tried to do it the same, not as well. And then I was hosting Trackside, the show you were hosting, and doing a little bit of the V8s. Now, two things with that. My first ever cross, I was telling Aaron Noonan, a, a mutual friend of ours, about this the other day. So we get to the Adelaide 500. You've gone on to Sunrise, which we need to talk about breakfast TV, and I've got to do my first fill in the pit lane. So as you know, mate, you got the race suit, the old Channel 10 race suit. But Channel 10 must have been tied on budget because they handed me my race suit and it had your name on it. And I immediately thought, this is an issue because you're four foot two and I'm six foot two. So I did my first cross outside Craig Baird's garage thinking, if his car catches on fire, I'm good apart from my calves down because my calves <laughs> and my lower leg and my ankle is going to get burnt off. So my first ever cross was in your race suit. No way. That's insane. It would have been so high pitched because basically there wouldn't have been enough length in the no, in the body it. of it. You, you, no. It would have been nothing but fly's eyes downstairs, mate. You would, oh, you would have been nearly cut in half by my suit. And as you know, I'm high pitched enough. But what I did do, covering the seven categories, I reckon you were this stage racing utes mm. and every ute driver had a nickname on their ute and you, I don't know who came up with this, which is what I want to get to, you were Grant Mad Dog Denya. Yeah. Now, you're as much of a mad dog as you are a farmer, <laughs> <laughs> I reckon, mate. There's no mad dog in my man G Denya. <laughs> Yeah, Mad Dog conjures up like the image of some, you know, bikey, some patched up bikey, you know what I mean, with the full flowing beard as he's hammering along with his with his ape hanger bars. <laughs> Whereas I kind of, you know, strike up an image of like a like an angry chihuahua, you know. Like, <laughs> that's that's but I was called Mad Dog for one particular reason. It was because I was sponsored by a pet food company, which is a company called VIP Pet Foods at that stage. So we, they thought it would be funny. Um, to make the the most non Mad Dog bloke called Mad Dog because of his pet food company sponsorship, so that was that was the reason why. So this was again an introduction for me because you you were a mate and and a, the fellow that got me into podcasting, a fellow called Jarvis Hunter, who we both know and love. Jarvi was editing Trackside and and a lady called Rachel Proudman to be on the out on the shoots, but then all of a sudden, and I don't know what you were talking now. I'd been in motorsport enough to know that there's crashes and, and you were in a ute and it just speared off and it was a big crash and I remember we got the onboard footage to make for trackside and I remember Jarvie and I sitting there saying, Jesus, the little bloke was lucky there. I think it hit us what you were doing is quite a dangerous thing and you know it is but you don't conceive that something could happen to your mate. And where was that? It was a big crash, big scary crash. Is that in the Ute? Yeah, in the Ute. On the subject of on-track problems, Grant Denyer 
There he is in the white ute. Oh, it's a huge hit. So that's the first time the utes had ever been run. It was their debut, right? It was their, it was the Clipsal 500, so street circuit lined with, you know, big concrete blocks. And what happened was is when in, in designing the category, which they pr- primarily wanted it to be entertainment first, racing second, right? So everyone's got a nickname. The television package is real fun and cheeky. And, um, but they wanted the racing to be great. So they thought, you know what, let's not give them perfect breaks because if, if the brakes fade, that means, you know, people are making mistakes and, you know, sliding off and getting one another. And that was the theory, right? Uh, as it turns out, the brakes weren't good at all. And <laughs> so I've I've come to the big stop down the back straight at the hairpin, huge yep. big climb on the anchors. And it's disintegrated the rear brake pads. They, you can see it in the telecast. That is fragments sort of fly off across the tracks because yes. it was at yes. dusk. And then so I come to the next big corner going to lean on the brakes, nothing there, nothing there at all. Is there time to realise that you're in – trouble or does it happen that quickly? No, super slow, super slow. So I realised I'm carrying a heap of speed here and all I can see is concrete walls and three guys in front of me, three cars. And I thought, oh, God, if I go to the right, I'll take out probably all three of them. If I go to the left, I'll just hit that bare five-tonne cement block over there and I might be dead. Mm. So I was like, oh, God, I'll just, I'll, you know what I'll do? I'll nail the back of the bloke in front of me and that'll wash off some of the speed and then whatever happens next is up to the great man upstairs. So I remember choosing the bloke in front of me going, I'm sorry, Rod, Rod Wilson, I'm coming for you. I hit him so hard in the back. What I didn't realise and what the category didn't realise is we hadn't disabled the airbags at that point from all the race cars. <laughs> so the airbag goes off. And sticks to my helmet. So I'm now, oh, all I can see is this white glow. Right? You're done. You're finished, you're thinking. I'm dead. <laughs> and all I can remember is going, you know what, at least it didn't hurt. Look, if I'm dead, at least it wasn't, I didn't suffer and it wasn't painful. I, <laughs> I'd, I'd literally, I'd, I'd already, already crossed over in my mind. And the accident is obviously still happening and the car's still, after bouncing off Rod Wilson's car, is still sort of, careering towards um, these cement blocks at speed. And it wasn't until I hit the cement blocks really, really hard, right where a cameraman was actually filming, that a little bit of the um, of the airbags sort of peeled off. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not dead. <laughs> I'm <still laughs> and Rod here. Wilson runs over. He opens the door. He goes, are you all right? I said, God, is that you? <laughs> <laughs> Back to Grant shortly. Next up on the Artist Series, a man with a million stories, maybe two million stories, Robert Crash Craddock. Crash, as he's widely known, has been a sports journo for over 40 years. He has seen it all, written about it all and loved it all. I work with Junior now who you tell Mark War who never used to leave his hotel room, still doesn't leave his hotel room, where his <laughs> brother was the opposite. Steve was the, the, the tourist out there. Crash, I remember... Photos and articles. I'm taking a stab in the dark here with him and Mother Teresa. Were you there then? Yeah, exactly. I was. And and the reason that happened, Howie, was I did a little profile of Steve Waugh in Australia and it said people I personally would like to meet. And he said, just, oh, Mother Teresa. And we just so happened a month later we were leaving for India. I said, why don't I try and arrange that? And he said, yeah, yeah, do it. So when we got over there, Howie, he must have asked us seven times, how's Mother Teresa going? Because he was doing a tour diary. And we got to Calcutta and I was feeling the pressure. But a bellboy at our hotel had been raised by her. And he said, look, come to this church at this time and she'll be there at Mass. Wow. And so we had to leave at 5am in the morning and Steve was excited beyond belief. Like when Steve, Steve's, when's ex- Steve's excited, he talks all the time. And otherwise, he's very quiet. And yes. he, on the, in the cab going there, he was so excited, like it was chatterbox. And, and we got there and we met Mother Teresa. And I always remember she had nothing on her feet. She <laughs> had these tiny little upturned feet. The day before, someone had given her a brand new car worth $60,000 at 10 a.m. And she'd sold it by midday wow. for her, for charity. You know, it just wow. went straight in, straight out. And, um, it was so exciting shaking hands with Mother Teresa that we took a security guy with us 
uh, to look after Steve and he passed out. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So so Steve and I were, like, we were suddenly the security guards. Look for the security guard. (laughs) If you love reading the sports pages, if you're like me and start at the back of the paper in the sport, you are going to love hearing from Robert Crash Craddock. That is next Tuesday on the Artist Series. Back to GD. Let's go back to your artistic side. Sunrise is where the country got to know you and fall in love with you. Right, thank you, Brett. Grant has all your weather today. We are live at the moment flying over the gorgeous city of Melbourne. Oh, it's doing 120 kilometres an hour. Do you want to know what 160 looks like? We'll do it after our latest look at the weather. What are you... Are you in the sky? Come in. This is Golf Romeo Alpha November Tango. Bravo. Grant, spelt out in uh, yeah, aeroplane talk. Morning team, yeah, just uh, watching a little bit of the uh, the bush television. The old, the old fire, eh? But this is too good! Good morning, Australia! Here we go! So... You would travel around in your in your in your weather van, and I would see you, and you always looked permanently knackered, which is something we can talk about. But so, was it six to nine at the time sunrise? Yep. So, how many crosses would you do between six and nine? Five. Okay, so five crosses. Now, what people have to understand. Um, Grant's crosses weren't, you know, here's the weather. I'm sitting out here and here's the weather. They, they were full production, so there's a lot of work going in. You know, you were wrestling crocodiles, riding bulls. Where, where was it when it – because I remember watching it thinking my man has made it big time here where you were dressed up as a cheerleader. Where was that? <laughs> that was at the Cronulla Sharks. Cronulla Sharks. Free fall, all right, free fall. It might be a new term to you, but it's a dancing one that we use in the industry. <laughs> work it, left, work it, right. Are you ready? <laughs> So this is extraordinary stuff. What? So what time would you get up every morning? What What's your day when you're on the road being the sunrise weatherman funny guy? Uh, but you're up at sort of at 3.30 a.m. So are people listening to that? You get up at 3.30. Mm. That's your starting point. But you're also in a different part of the country every single day. Like when the weather came along, so this goes back to both when you and I at Channel 10 and being the, the colour color reporter guys, is the gig for Sunrise came along only because no one in the newsroom wanted to do, no decent journo wanted to do 14 days straight of the Royal Easter show. So I went to um, the, the, um, the news director who was probably one of, the, one of the greatest swearers of all time and a bit of a cranky unit. I was very scared of him. <laughs> uh, and I went... I went to him and said, look, I know that no journo in here wants to cover the Royal Easter Show. You give me all 14 days and I will give you something completely off the charts every single day. And I'll make it a personal challenge to myself to really reinvigorate it every day and make it completely different than the day before. He's like, mate, you're doing me a massive favour. It's yours. Yeah, it's yours. <laughs> and then what happened? I did all 14 days and they get this phone call from this new executive producer uh, from who's just taken over from Sunrise and he was like, mate, I've just seen you do 14 days straight at the Royal Easter Show. I've never, ever met anyone who can polish a turd better than you. You are the guy <laughs> for us. <laughs> he said, How do, do you want to be the weatherman? And I was like, oh, at that point my career felt like it was sort of, you know, ascending a little bit and I was like, oh, I don't know if I want to be a weatherman because I think if you're a weatherman you'll be a weatherman forever. And, yep. you know, and, and I have sort of some slightly different dreams. So I said, no. And they said, please think about it. And I was like, hmm. What if I made it about anything but the weather, but just maybe yep. do the, a little bit of the weather last second? And they said, whatever you want to do. And I was like, okay, this is cool. So on, the, on that, how, when you're the, because we've both lived in this, how are you, explain to people how you're perceived when you're in a serious newsroom at 10 and you're the funny guy that has the story before sport. Because I can still remember clearly a guy who's a fantastic journo called Paul Kennedy. Mm. He's a beautiful writer. Um, he's done fantastic work on the ABC now, News now with their breakfast show, and he left 10. And I remember saying to him, PK, he was right into sports, so we had similar interests. So I, I sort of sat near sport, probably in your old desk, but sort of between sport and the serious news guys. And PK said to me, he said, I've decided to leave because when blokes like you are doing news stories about UFOs or cats <laughs> up trees, 
this is not the news that I <laughs> had planned to work on in my career, so I'm out of here. So you are, you're an outrider when you're in the newsroom and you're doing the Nathan Buckley hamstring story. I had journos that just wouldn't wouldn't talk to me. <laughs> no, this is the same experience. I had journos that would pretend that I, I didn't even exist. <laughs> like I, I did a story once on a lady who let a horse sleep in her bed. This <laughs> <laughs> is just coming back to me now. I, I literally just spent a day with this lady and just watched, you know, she just lets the horse in the house and then when it's time to go to bed, the horse literally just gets into her bed and, and goes to sleep. And then I I think that's when I made myself public enemy number one in the news. <laughs> I remember clearly doing a story about a sheep that thought it was a dog. <laughs> So it would it would chase a bone and stuff like that. And I asked the chief of staff, it was about 300k away, could I take the news chopper to shoot this story? And he let me take the chopper back when we had <laughs> when we had budgets. And it just alienated the entire newsroom because something happened and the chopper was offered a story shooting a sheep that thought it was a dog. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of covering the live car chase that it could have been covering. <laughs> the OJ Simpson style. <laughs> so we, we, we've ascertained that you you made me an, an outrider because I had to follow your path. So, so, so Sunrise, what's, what's involved in the day? You say you get up at 3.30 and I, I presume when you finish your day, you're on the road again to get to the next location. But how did you approach it day in, day out? And the to bring the energy you brought to that show when you had got up at 3.30 in the morning is what I found extraordinary. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it, I, I'm a competitive little bugger and mm. Sunrise wasn't number one at that point. So the Today Show was number one for, had been for 30 years and TV habits don't change overnight. So it's no. a massive mission, particularly habitual programming like breakfast television. That, 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 that's a part of ingrained in people's routine and getting them to change to another network is virtually impossible. However, I, I, I wanted to be there when it happened or wanted to be part of the team that helped create that to happen. And I thought, how do you win over a whole country? And this is where the country kid came at me because I remember the first time, you know, a TV crew came to our little town and mm. I was like, we remembered that forever and we were loyal to that network forever because they made an effort. We felt seen, we felt heard, we felt acknowledged. We were loyal. So I was like, I'll treat this like a campaign, like a, like a US election campaign. I'll just go to every <laughs> single town in every single area in every single state and one by <laughs> one we'll win them all over. And that's exactly what happened. We took our little bus around. We started in Tasmania. Then we went around the map in a clockwise direction and and you could track it. You could track it in all the ratings for all those regions everywhere you went because we'd made the effort and we, and we put them on the map. They were then Sunrise viewers forever. And then I hadn't even finished out the whole lap of the map in one year by the time we were number one. And so that was, that was my goal. I, I, and I knew, I knew country people. I knew how Australians worked and it, it, it did work. So how long were you on the road for? Well, I was on the road for eight years. So because the other thing is you need to give them something different, right? So if you could get them to go in their brain, I wonder where they are today, I wonder what crazy shit they're doing, then they'll remain engaged and they'll keep coming back. But the problem is you still have to then stay out in remote parts of the country, showing them places that they either would never have heard of or would ever get the chance to go to or do so something so insanely stupid that, uh, you know, it, it, it keeps them gagging for more. So it, I became my own worst enemy purely because I refused to just stand in front of a green screen and point at a weather map. You know, I thought the news is so – and this, again, going back to learning how – the news is so dark and so sad and so harrowing and so hurtful that, and we'd learnt that, you know, with September 11. Yep. I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could be the antidote to that, if you could be the solution hmm. to that? So after the news has happened, you're that little three-minute window where you get to put a smile on someone's face or go, shit, did you see him do that? That was crazy. Oh, what an awesome place. I'd love to go there whenever we can, you know, raise a couple of bucks and go on a holiday. You know, I, I liked being 
the rainbow at the end of the storm. Tell me uh, eight years, so it's going to be very hard for you, and you'll say, oh, gee, tell me a, a story or a cross on the road that you look back at and think, I made a connection or I love that one or this happened and we nearly weren't going to do it. Tell me a story, one story from on the road of those eight years of sunrise where you were in our lounge room every morning with a smile on your face, making us feel good about ourselves. Yeah, well, you you chose the Cronulla Sharks moment where I was dressed up with the Sharkettes in the Sharkettes gear uh, with it all on show, baby. It was it was an assault in the senses. It was like me on your in your race suit again. It was all a bit tight and constricting. Uh, that gets mentioned a lot. Funnily enough, even still today, people can stop me to talk about that one. I really liked. I liked the you know we were the first to broadcast live um, in China. Because uh, that was never allowed, because there was so much uh, communist and socialist control there that no one was ever no no news agency is ever allowed to broadcast out of China. But um, we were the first people to do that because um, the guy who owned Channel Seven, Kerry Stokes, had a big business interest in in China and also set up a lot of TV stations for them there. So that was like a milestone. Um, being a part of that was that that was pretty cool. But I really love the adventure television stuff you know, where we pushed the envelope, you know, jumping out of a heli- out of a plane, actually the helicopter, J- jumping out of a helicopter over Bondi Beach to set the record for the world's largest tandem bungee jump <laughs> was insane. Um, I'll, and I'll, t- I'll tell you why, because it was with the guy who invented bungee jumping, AJ Hackett. Yep. And we thought, man, this would be a cool stunt. You know, we'll have a camera on the ground, camera in a helicopter, another helicopter shooting our helicopter, big, 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 big. Um, now, the record at that point was like 157 metres uh, and I don't know why we didn't go for like 158 or 159, maybe rounded up to 160. Uh, we went for 300. <laughs> so you've gotten double. Double, double right? <laughs> so we turn up that morning, AJ Hackett, I've, I've arrived at, uh, at Bankstown Airport in the hel- helicopter, the Whirly Birds, she's got them spinning, she's waiting for me to go because we've, we've only got half an hour to our next live cross to do this big stunt. I get there, AJ... His eyes are so bloodshot. He's clearly had the biggest night of his life, right? <laughs> so I'm like, hang on a second. My life's in this guy's hands. So right up. Anyway, no time, no time. Throw us in there. We're standing on the skids. We're taking off. He's holding on to 300 metres of bungee cord. Pilot oh, boom, takes off over, over the city towards Bondi. Mate, helicopters are fast. Yes. When you're standing out on the skids. <laughs> yes. You know, we were nearly blowing off. Now, now the problem was we were over the, the skyscrapers of the CBD. So had we fallen off, mate, we just would have gone dong, dong, dong into every building. So Jeez. I'm yelling out at the pilot, slow down, slow down, we're falling off, we're falling off. And he's got his, his noise-cancelling Bose headphones on. <laughs> he's happy as Larry up front. <laughs> he's just full go. He doesn't hear us. So I had to find something in the back of the cockpit and threw it at the pilot. Bang, hit him in the back of the head. He turns around. Slow down, slow down. Whew. Crisis averted. No dramas. We get over Bondi. I do my last little cross to Koshi and Mel at the time. Oh, Koshi, yeah, yeah this is going to be amazing. Oh, I'm terrified. Oh, my God. Why am I doing this? Uh, I turn around and I could see that AJ could no longer hold the bungee cord because it's just too heavy. Like his arms were just shot. I put the mic down. He goes three, two, and jumps. And I'm like, well, for starters, where's one? <laughs> he starts falling backwards, like like in slow mo, like Die Hard, like that like final scene where Hans Gruber yeah. just starts falling <laughs> from the sky. He goes, and I'm like, oh, well, I guess I don't know if I'm tied on. Like I, there was no, there was no preparatory work. Like right. after the live cross, there's no double check the knots. And in the haste to get on the helicopter back at back, back at Bankstown, I don't remember anyone tying me on. So I'm like, oh, this is live. Jeez. Everyone's watching. Well, if he's going, I'm going with him. So I I dove and grabbed him as he was falling back and just pulled him in and just hugged him as hard as I could, going. I don't know. This is this is bad. Not realistically knowing if you're tied on. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I didn't. I did not know if I was tied on. That's a pretty extreme move for ratings, my friend. Well, I'm thinking just hang on and you know, Grant will do it tomorrow no. type of situation. Because I knew we had one shot at it. And 
I knew that if I wasn't tied on, I by the time you know the rope pulls tight and he re- recoils and I keep going, and I hit the water. I'm dead right from that height. That's that's obvious. Yes. So this whole way, I'm, I'm falling, falling, not knowing if I'm tied on, and then all of a sudden, oh, yeah. I just feel this very slow resistance. This really slow. Oh, my speed's coming down. My speed's coming down. I'm good. I'm tied on. I'm tied on. This is great. This is fantastic. Yeah, it's worked. It's worked. It's worked. And then at 300 meters, the recoil starts going back. And so, and accelerating and getting faster and faster and faster and faster. And I look up and all I can see is these enormous rotor blades. Oh, the chopper. Just a massive, big human blender just spinning around. And we're racing towards the underside of this. And at this point I'm like, fuck, has anyone done the maths? Has anyone done the maths on how far we're going to come back up? Because we could (laughs) slam into the, uh, the, bo- the bottom of the helicopter or the bloody blades would be cut to shreds on television. And I looked at AJ and he's in no state to, <laughs> to, to, to talk me through the mathematics of this. And so we come up so fast that the helicopter, thank God, pilot had his head out the window and was looking down at us and realised we're shooting towards the underside of the helicopter and he's grabbed a tonne of collective to just shoot towards the sky just so we didn't crash into one another. Bloody hell, guru. Far out. But it all worked out. Thankfully, he spotted that. We got the Guinness World Record and it still stands today for one good reason. It should never be yes. done in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> so now you understand the man is prepared to do anything for his art <laughs> and, and for his ratings. One of the m- most impressive things I've ever seen, and this is what I had in my head on Australian television and people won't understand it, I'm thinking it's 2011. You could tell me better. You, you made your debut in 2006 at Bathurst and it gets to 2011 and you haven't been racing cars much and I reckon it's the development series uh, and you're probably, I think you're a co-driver as well. So when you explain what's required to drive Bathurst, people understand this, you were not only trying to get your head around driving the car, which you hadn't done much of recently, but you're also involved in the Channel 10 motorsport coverage alongside myself, Matty White, um, whoever else was working on it at the time. And I remember you went out, you had to do your first practice session. I said, how are you feeling, mate? And you said, mate, I'm shitting myself. I haven't been in a car. You don't understand how frightening it is to get in that car. And then you drove back and you were cooked and you're sitting in the little production hut drinking water. You might not remember this. And then the producer came in and said, oh, Grant, you've got to get down to do a cross for the coverage. And I remember looking at you thinking, he's not in a state to do that at the moment. He, he, like you're almost shaking after you, you spin around Mount Panorama. And then I thought, wow, this this guy he, he, he is the guru. So as a bloke, a high-level driver, driving V8 supercars, but what is Bathurst like when you are not Jamie Winkup? Yeah, it's um, it's it's terrifying. Uh, it feels like there's death at it, potential death at every turn. Well, that's how you looked in the little shed, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, because you know they're hard cars to drive. You know, three hundred kilometers an hour is 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 not something that comes comfortably to anybody. Um, and then if you're in a car that's being sort of, you know, the, the car was a bit of a bitzer. It was it was. It was may it was being run by a team that wasn't that wasn't their priority either. So you weren't sort of really getting what you needed, um, and then you're also out of shape. You know, out of shape physically from living on the road. You know, doing sunrise all the time, where you're just constantly exhausted, and you 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 eat at service stations. You know, or or pubs because they're the only places you can get a feed. You know, when you're in regional parts of Australia, so you're you're in bad nick. Um, not a lot of fresh miles. I think 2009 was was the last time I'd, I'd been driving the development series. And while I won four or five races that year in 2009, you got to be in these things all the time. You know, yes. it's it's like it's like being called up to play in an AFL grand final when you haven't kicked the footy for three years. Yeah, you know, no preseason, <sighs> no games, no games during the season, just straight into a grand final because that, that place is gnarly. It's it's it, you know it's the sexiest bit of tar in the world, but it's it's so steep and fast and blind and cresty. And if you're in a car that's not nice, then it it's it's the last place you want to be. Um, because it's, you know, I've, I've been in a few races where people have, have died there. Um, the one I remember was Mark Porter. Mark Porter, yeah. yeah. Mark Porter. Oh, no. 
It is David Clark. Huge hit into the driver's side of Mark Porter's car, the Hydrolink Commodore. So I, I remember you were racing then and I was feeling your role at Channel 10 Motorsport and I'm glad you brought up his name because he was a lovely fella and he, he had a young family as well, I remember, and he was just another guy like you in the paddock doing his best, not on a big budget, um, and then he was dead. Yeah, and that was the same year as Peter Brock as well. Yeah. And I was in that rally with Peter Brock when he when he died. Um, and then so I go to Bathurst, my first Bathurst in the 1000. This I was in the support category as well, you know, in the development series. And that he was, he was, the car in front of me was the car that hit him in the door and killed him. So I saw, I saw that happen. So he span mm, and he was he sideways was in a across the track. And a car then hit him and you were behind that car. That's correct, yeah. So I saw, I saw the flags come out um, and I just rolled out going, well, if, if there's a car around this blind corner, well, then, you know, we're all in trouble. So I'll, I'll slow down. And the car in front of me, it didn't slow down as much um, and just, un, you know, he's, Mark was on the racing line at that point and you have no warning because you, you're talking nanoseconds from the moment you see him to the moment you hit him. Um, so I, I saw him go into the door and I'm sort of squeezed around the side. But, yeah, that was, that was, that was another really heavy year, you know, that one. And then also then is this really what I want to do, you know? There, there, there's a toll here that is and maybe I'm prepared to take the risk. Maybe I've accepted motorsport and the potential danger of motorsport. I've accepted that. Um, that's okay. But, you know, mm. I've also I'm a, I'm a brother and I'm a son and, um, you know, I, I, had, I had a partner, well, my wife now, um, and it was I wrestled with that a lot. Um, but it's like just because it's dangerous, should you not do it? Or should I live a life where it's an amazing opportunity? You know, what's the point in wrapping yourself up in cotton wool if you're not living a great life? You know, yeah, you could be safe, um, but, you know, I, I kind of arrived at the point that life, you know, is for a short time and you really should squeeze as much as you can out of that bad boy. Um, and push it to the limits. You know, people ask me now as a father, how can you how can you go motor racing as a father? And yeah, that's a tough one to wrestle with as well. But I kind of want to show my girls how limitless life can be, and mm. to not be afraid. It's very easy to let fear override your central nervous system, and you don't attempt anything. You don't go on a limb, whether that's in your career or your sport or your hobby. But I kind of want to show them that the sky's the limit. You know, and to aim big because it's incredible things can happen to you. But you, I don't want it to lead by example. So, you know, I chose to continue to do that sport regardless, you know, of God, I would have seen how many people die. I don't know, it'd be nearly 10. And this is a, this is the predictable question for every person in motorsport. But after you see it happen, and as you say, you want to embrace life and you want to get the most out of it, but there will be a meeting amongst the drivers and it will be discussed and then the next session comes along and you have to get back in the car. And whether it's a close mate or an associate or someone you deem as a colleague that you're racing against, they've died in the previous 24 hours and you're getting back in the car. Like if you say it like that, it's madness in a way. Yeah, yeah, it does seem, it seems a bit callous almost that, that why isn't there, you know, why isn't the whole event just shut down? You know, why isn't there, that's the way motorsport has sort of operated and I'm sure other forms of sport does too, you know. He he didn't die instantly so he, he was in hospital later on so the weekend was, was, was sort of still progressing. Mm. Um, but I don't remember the rest of the weekend, to be honest, because I think that cast such a shadow over it and the danger of it was so high and so omnipresent and so obvious. I just watched someone die right in front of me going around that corner. Now I've got to do that corner 161 times in the in the 1,000 race. Um, yeah, I think I took myself to another place. I think I blanked it out. I, I, don't, I don't remember any of it. I don't remember any of the 1,000 or any of the rest of the weekend after that person died, which I think was a survival instinct, you know. Mm. I, I got sponsors. I got people that have sort of paid, you know, a lot of money to put their name on my car and supported my career. You know, I, I kind of I owe, I owe them 
plus you're also like, I've chosen this career since I was 16. I've been racing carts and this is the pinnacle. You know, I'm now, I've reached the top, the very top rung of the ladder. This is something to be celebrated. Um, so I just got in and just did the job. And finished well. Was that with was that with Alex? Yeah, that was with Alex, yeah. Alex Davidson. We were running third in the last, um, we were running third in the last sort of half an hour. 15 laps to go. And the margin is still seven seconds. The fly in the ointment, so to speak. Alex Davison in third position on track. Um, but Alex's belts came undone. His seatbelts. Yeah, okay. Went right, around Forrest's right. elbow, which is quite a lot of steering lock, and his elbow uh, nudged the, the top of the seatbelt uh, assembly, the buckle, and just undid them all. Here is the Davison Denya car coming in for the pit stop. That will vault James Courtney up to third, Ingle to fourth, and so on. Been a great run for the second of Dick Johnson's cars. The first one was out very early in the piece. Off they go to feed back into the queue. And so we uh, we fin- end up finishing ninth, first, but still still first rookie. Um, yeah. That is the end of Grant Denyer Part A. Much more, much more goodness coming your way in Part B.